0: Why do you support refugees?
1: I support refugees because my family were refugees.
0: I support refugees because we are all God's children and we all deserve a safe place to grow in God's love.
2: I support refugees because God made us all in
3: God's image.
4: I support refugees because I am a legal guardian of a minor asylee named Carol from Burundi. I support refugees because my Lord was
0: a refugee.
3: Because I welcome and I love my neighbor.
0: Hi, and welcome to Hometown, a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries, the refugee resettlement and welcome ministry of the Episcopal Church. I'm Allison Duvall and I'm Kendall Martin. Today is our final episode of season
5: two. This episode features a recording of the July 2nd webinar hosted by the Episcopal Public Policy Network and EMM. Listen and learn Border Advocacy and Ministry with Bishop Michael Hun of the Diocese of Rio Grande.
0: We invite you to visit our website, episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash blog to find a new blog post that includes bishop statements, remarks from the presiding bishop, asks for help from the border, news stories, and more. So again, that's episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash blog. The blog post itself is called Response to the Border, Education and Advocacy. So if you look for that post, you should find all sorts of information. One thing that's really important for us as Episcopal Migration Ministries is that even as we continue our work of refugee resettlement and advocacy for the refugee resettlement program, we wanna lift up the voices, the stories, and the needs coming from our southern border with asylum seekers who are seeking safety in our country. We don't ourselves do that work at the national level. We do refugee resettlement. But as I said, it's so important for all of you as listeners to know what's going on along the border from our Episcopal dioceses and partners. So please do check out EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash blog to learn all about it and how you can get involved. And as
5: ministries across the Episcopal Church continue to respond on the ground, we will share their statements, their information, their resources, and their asks both on our website and on our social media.
0: And before we turn to the audio from the webinar listeners, we wanted to offer a prayer to center ourselves, but also invite you to center yourself in having courage for the work ahead. There's so much work that needs to be done in public policy advocacy and direct service in education and raising awareness. And if you're looking for something to do and how you can respond, it's important to have courage and just to get started. If you've never been involved in this work before, don't wait, learn, access our resources on the EMM website, join partners and welcome, and start taking those steps to get involved in this work. So we hope that you will center yourselves as we center ourselves with this prayer for courage. Courage comes from the heart, and we are always welcomed by God, the heart of all being. We bear witness to our faith, knowing that we are called to live lives of courage, love and reconciliation in the ordinary and extraordinary moments of each day. We bear witness to to our failures and our complicity in the fractures of our world. May we be courageous today. May we learn today. May we love today. Amen.
4: Thank you, Pendle, and thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, We welcome the opportunity to share an update on what's happening at the border and to learn more about the ministries of the diocese and the work that Episcopalians are doing on this issue in addressing critical humanitarian needs. My name is Rebecca Blatchley, and I direct the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations. I'm joined by my colleague, Lacey Brumell, who is the Refugee and Immigration Policy Advisor, Kendall Martin, who is the Communications Manager for Episcopal Migration Ministries, and Alan Yarborough from OGR will be doing tech support. The Episcopal Church Office of Government Relations represents the public policy positions of the church to the U.S. government in Washington. We run the Episcopal Public Policy Network, or the EPPN, where we educate, equip, and engage Episcopalians and urge everyone to incorporate advocacy as a key piece of all of our ministries. We are so pleased that today we have the Right Reverend Michael burkle Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of the Rio Grande, and that he's joined us today to share what's happening in his diocese and to learn more about the Episcopal Church's response there and what we can do to support. We are so grateful for your ministry and witness, bishop Hun. Thank you. I'd also like to recognize the work of other dioceses who are living into this ministry at the border including the Diocese of West Texas, the Diocese of Arizona, and the Diocese of San Diego. And we know that there are dioceses who are responding all over the country, who are helping asylum seekers, undocumented immigrants, and refugees, and we are grateful for their ministry and work. We have experts today who will be addressing direct service provision, ministry, response, and advocacy. All of these pieces are critical because they're interrelated. We need to respond to immediate needs in this ongoing crisis. We also need to come together to create systemic change because it's the policy changes that, in some sense, are driving many of these crises. So we are grateful for your commitment to meeting needs, loving our neighbors, and carrying out the transformative work of advocating for our values and principles as Christians. Before we begin, let's just come together in prayer This prayer is a prayer for migrants from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. The Lord be with you. Good and gracious God, we pray for all people who are migrating, particularly those who are forced from their homes or separated from their families because of threats of violence and persecution. We ask that you protect and keep them safe. Although we come from different countries and have our origins in different cultures, we were created by you and are made in your image, and therefore we all share an inalienable dignity that is deserving of respect. Lord, we ask that you give us the strength to defend those who are marginalized, to give aid to those in need, to come to the defense of those who are poor or vulnerable, and to welcome those who are on the move into our homes and into our hearts. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, Your Son, who lives and reigns. One. Let me now turn to my colleague, Lacey Burmel, Refugee and Immigration Policy Advisor, to give an update on current. Thank you,
1: Rebecca. I'll be sharing, as Rebecca said, current policy updates and changes that we've seen regarding immigration and asylum policy, and also some of the most recent updates from Washington, D.C. I'd like to start by giving you an understanding of global forced displacement. Global forced displacement is at an all-time high. The UN estimates that there are over 70 million persons who have been forced from their home around the world and are currently in search of safety. This number illustrates, sadly, a longer-term rising trend in the number of people around the world needing safety from war, conflict, and persecution. Trends around the world are tied to what we are seeing at our U.S. southern border, the rising number of children and family units seeking safety here. And while many asylum seekers at our southern border are from Central America, asylum seekers come from all around the world and are fleeing a variety of conflicts and experiences of persecution. And indeed, as people of faith, we must remember that behind these statistics are people and individual stories and experiences. The Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion at large is responding to these humans in numerous and impactful ways. Today's webinar aims to give you a sense of the policy and ministry happening around this issue. Please note that we won't be able to cover absolutely everything in this hour, and we'll be hearing from a bishop who's able to contact, knowing that as Rebecca said, this work is happening across the country in many dioceses and indeed around the world. So we're aiming in this short hour to explain a part of a very large and complex issue. To begin with an explanation of policy, I'd like to explain a little of the basics of asylum. Rather than refugee resettlement, where refugees are granted refugee status overseas, usually by the UN, and then are vetted by the US government overseas, and then resettled through a resettlement agency like Episcopal Migration Ministries, asylum seekers exercise a legal right by presenting themselves at the border or by already being on US soil and declaring that they are seeking asylum. Or in other words, asylum is a legal process by which people fleeing persecution in their home country may seek to live in safety in the United States. Only after someone has gone through a specific determination process, part of that is displayed on the screen. And this process can include experiencing detention, having in-person interviews, and a case being reviewed by a judge. Only after all of these processes, which for some individuals can take years, is someone then granted asylum and offered the political and legal protection which that entails. And over the past several years, we've seen several policy changes aimed at limiting the ability of asylum seekers to seek protection. And today I'll be talking about some of those. Around this time last year, the administration's zero tolerance policy came to light in the public due to the significant number of children who were separated from their parents. Under this zero tolerance policy, and over an extended period of time, the Trump administration separated thousands of children from their parents. We now see a family separation and zero tolerance actually lasted much longer than we initially knew and impacted even more people than we originally knew. Some reports indicate that this is actually even still occurring in small cases. And remember, many of these families were asylum seekers who were exercising a legal right to seek protection at our border. This action of zero tolerance and family separation sparked outrage and wide condemnation from people across America and including our church. Additional policy changes have been efforts to block means for asylum seekers to gain protection or even preventing them from entering the United States at all. There have been new rules from the Department of Justice or DOJ that have made it more difficult for women fleeing gang violence or domestic violence to be granted asylum. There have been asylum bans put in place that would force asylum seekers to prevent themselves to present themselves at a port of entry. This is currently enjoined in the courts as of this presentation. But while there have been those efforts to prevent individuals from presenting themselves, there's also been efforts to simultaneously limit the number of people who can cross at port of entries each day. This is a process known as metering. And this has left many people with few options, forcing some to take dangerous crossings over rivers and through deserts. The Trump administration has also developed what's known as the Migration Protocol Procedures. And this, in part, established what is known as the Remain in Mexico policy. This plan forces migrants to wait in Mexico while their asylum claim is being reviewed rather than waiting in the United States. This part, this is concerning for several reasons. One, it may not be safe for those individuals to wait in Mexico. There may not be shelter or lodging or food for them there. And also it restricts a person's access to legal services. Bishop Hun can speak more to what he is seeing and experiencing in his diocese related to this policy. As over, as more than 6,500 asylum seekers have been sent back to El Paso's neighboring Ciudad Juarez since the Remain in Mexico policy began in the El Paso area earlier this spring. This policy has also been put into place in San Diego and Calexo, and a collectively around 15,000 individuals have been re- returned to wait in Mexico in those areas. We have also seen an unprecedented expansion of immigration detention detaining the very people who are exercising a legal right to seek asylum here. This includes reports of children and family units being held in short-term facilities by Customs and Border Protection that are overcrowded and are exposing children and individuals to inhumane situations. Reported conditions include that children are not receiving adequate food, proper hygiene, or adult care. The Department of Homeland Security's own internal reports, in fact, have showed that in one center, only four showers were available for 756 immigrants. More than half the immigrants were being held outside, and immigrants inside were being kept in cells maxed out at more than five times their capacity. These CBP facilities are not built to hold this many people, and many facilities are simply soft-sided tents. I'll speak about possible solutions and responses we've seen to these conditions momentarily. We have seen proposed legislation in Congress that would significantly cut off pathways for individuals to seek asylum and would roll back protections for children. Over the past two years, there's also been significant debate around funding in Congress for these issues leading in part to what we saw at the beginning of this year with the longest ever government shutdown. Just last week, though, Congress passed a funding supplemental bill of $4.6 billion in an attempt to send more money to care for children and other asylum seekers in government custody. This was largely in response to these reports of inhumane conditions and that these programs were running out of funds to care for this High number of persons. This funding supplemental bill included $2.88 billion for the Health and Human Services Office of Refugee Resettlement, or ORR. ORR is passed with sheltering and caring for unaccompanied children who cross the border. The bill that passed was the Senate version, and it did not provide specific safeguards for standards of care that the House version proposed. However, last week, a federal judge did establish a requirement for monitoring of health and conditions in these facilities, so we will look to track those reports and improvements closely. I also wanted to say that, of course, this is not the first time that we've had debate around funding immigration in Congress, and certainly this summer, Congress is working to provide funding for the next fiscal year. So we have been actively involved in requesting robust funding, so we won't have to do emergency funding, so these accounts will not run low again and be threatened into terms of not having enough funds to care for children and other asylum seekers. In response to all of this, our message as OGR is that while there's a rise in family units and children seeking asylum at the border, Congress should advance compassionate and sensible reforms investing in humanitarian solutions rather than responding with enforcement and deterrence only. The Episcopal Church, through its official policies passed at General Convention and Executive Council, support common-sense immigration enforcement policies that respect the dignity and worth of every human being. Those who break our immigration laws in order to do us harm need to be prevented from doing so. But the increased militarization of the border, efforts to prevent asylum seekers from seeking protection at the border, and prison-like detention for migrants, families, and children are not the solution. We have signed on to statements and have brought the message to Congress with other faith and secular groups to urge solutions to this situation by supporting some of the following. There has been a global downturn in the number of refugees resettled each year to the United States, and increasing this opportunity for resettlement and in-country processing could provide these individuals with a safe, legal pathway for protection. We encourage the United States to modernize ports of entry and ensure adequate staffing at ports of entry to efficiently, humanely, and expeditiously process asylum applicants and facilitate international trade and cross-border travel. Upgrading infrastructure and technology at ports of entry not only enables the United States to better manage the asylum and immigration process and promote trade and travel, but it also improves border security as a majority of dangerous drugs, including opioids, enter the country through ports of entry. We also support expanding alternatives to detention and investing in the humane treatment of all persons with the help of NGOs and faith communities for those in government custody. Child welfare and medical professionals continue to warn that the use of detention for any period of time is irrevocably harmful for children. We believe that Department of Homeland Security should dedicate more funds to case management programs and other alternatives to detention. These programs would save taxpayer dollars, and they're extremely effective at ensuring compliance with immigration court hearings and even removal. And in the interim, we need standards of care to be established and followed for children and other adults who are seeking asylum and in government custody through detention. Lastly, I'll share that we are working on advancing these policies with a variety of faith groups, such as within the Interfaith Immigration Coalition, working with the evangelical immigration table and others to address these issues, especially these sanitarian issues that are so core at the care of who we are as people of faith and why we engage in these issues. And now I will turn to a discussion with Bishop Hun. Bishop Hun, if you'd like to introduce yourself and then we'll get into some dialogue about some of these issues, thank you.
2: Hi there, Lacey. It's a pleasure to be with you, and hello to everybody out there. My name is Michael Burkle-Hunn, and I serve the Diocese of the Rio Grande, which is a beautiful diocese, the second largest diocese in the Episcopal Church after Alaska, and it contains the city of El Paso, the far west part of Texas, and the entire state of New Mexico. So we, our diocese encompasses 40% of the U.S.-Mexico border, and we have been partnering for many years now with the other three Episcopal Church dioceses along the border the Diocese of West Texas, the Diocese of Arizona, and the Diocese of San Diego. Just last year, together with those three dioceses, we hosted the first ever Borderland Conference that gathered together both the Episcopal Church diocese and also the diocese from Mexico in the Anglican Church in Mexico and also. Uh, Dioceses like El Salvador were present as well. And I want you all to know that the second Borderland Conference is coming up in November of this year. It'll be held in Tucson, hosted by the Diocese of Arizona, and it'll be November 21 to 23. And so if you want to really learn more about everything from why people are leaving their home countries, to what their experience is at every step of the journey, please join us and look for information coming out of that Borderlands Conference. But I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you all today.
1: Thank you so much, Bishop Hun. I will just echo that I was able to attend the first uh, Borderland Ministry Summit last fall, and it was a really wonderful opportunity. So I encourage you all on today to think about joining and being part of that this year. My first question that I have for you is to ask generally, how does your diocese organize around these issues? and what are the variety of responses uh, that you all are preparing and engaged in?
2: Thank you. Uh, as I said, we in this diocese, we live along the border. Living along the border is, is a part of our life. And if you look at the culture of the diocese of the Rio Grande, really, in, in terms of the way we understand ourselves as parts of this diocese, the culture that exists here in far west Texas and New Mexico goes way back before there was even a border. And so there are families that have family members on either side of the border, and, and our approach really is uh, un, is a neighborly one that includes uh, reaching out to both sides of the Rio Grande River and understanding that the culture doesn't stop at that river, but in fact, it, it goes across. So our Diocesan Borderland Ministries ministry, the Rio Grande Borderland Ministries has been working uh, actively on both sides of the border, helping to alleviate poverty and and other things for many years. Things really started to change for us around Christmas time of this year, when there were waves of asylum seekers that were presenting themselves at the border. Along the borderlands for many years, we've been used to having um, primarily male workers who came across the border. And and yet what started to happen, as we all saw, around Christmas time was large groups of families traveling in caravans, uh, arriving at the border, not trying to sneak across the border, but trying to legally enter the country by presenting themselves to the border patrol and saying, I want to claim asylum because I'm frightened to go home. And what started to happen was the, the facilities along the border which, like I say, were designed to contain adult male workers in a prison-like environment. Those facilities were all the government had to house waves and waves of families and young children. And those facilities quickly got overrun. And so the Border Patrol started dropping off busloads of people at, at the bus station in El Paso. And all of the churches in the faith community started gathering together in a very much ecumenical and interfaith effort to contact the Border Patrol and say, hey, please don't drop people off at the bus station, bring them to us, and we will house and feed and clothe them and get them ready to go on their journey to their sponsoring families. And so since, uh, since January almost every congregation in the Diocese of the Rio Grande has been involved in some way in supporting those asylum seekers, whether it was gathering food and clothing and sending it to El Paso, or then as the El Paso shelters got overwhelmed, the Border Patrol started bringing people to Las Cruces, and then to Albuquerque when Las Cruces got overwhelmed, when Albuquerque started getting full, Deming, New Mexico, that that vast a trans- transportation hub, which probably many people have never heard of. There, each of these communities have had their interfaith and ecumenical uh, community gathering together to shelter asylum seekers. And all of our congregations have been involved in this work. And I know also in all of the other three dioceses, this same um, methods have been in place. So it's been a very busy, uh, it's been a busy six months, and you asked how we're organizing, and I will say we are trying to figure it out, but the situation continues to change, and so we're, we're trying to adapt on the fly.
1: Thank you. That's helpful. And I'm curious to know, what is the po- political affiliation of folks in your diocese? And, you know, this is certainly a political issue um, that we know for sure, and what impact are those political dynamics having in your diocese?
2: Thank you for asking that. In our diocese, we're about 50-50, 50% 50 Republican, 50% Democrat. And I think it's really important for us to not allow the polarizing forces of the state's political spectrum these days to divide the Episcopal Church on these issues. I believe that these are moral issues. These are gospel issues. And no matter who you voted for, there is a gospel call for us to care for the least of these there is a gospel call for us to love our neighbor, we are called to reach out in love to those in need. And we may disagree about the precise political strategies that might be most effective in this situation. But I think the Episcopal Church, and I have found it to be the case here in the Diocese of the Rio Grande, every Sunday, Episcopalians from both sides of the aisle get together, not to fight with each other, but rather to pray to God to together and then work together on gospel solutions to problems in their communities. That's what we're really working on here in the Diocese of the Rio Grande, and there is plenty of common ground. So our congregations include both undocumented people and Border Patrol agents. There are people who, whose livelihood is dependent upon the facilities that are uh, housing children and asylum seekers, and we cover the entire political spectrum. So. We're really trying to keep the focus on the moral issues and questions, and on gospel-based solutions.
1: Excellent, thank you. And so, could you speak a little bit to what you're just uh, indicating? Is the common ground that's there? Um, is there common ground on these issues in your diocese? Where are you finding it? Just a, a little bit more there of what you're just saying.
2: Sure thing, absolutely. I I, th- I think that if if the only information you get is from the TV news. What we hear is a political debate about strategies, and what we're starting to hear now, and what we're gonna hear a lot more of, is uh, election running for office pitches. But what we're seeing here along the border are families of people who are fleeing, seeking security from their homes. These are families that have left all all they have, they have left their houses, they have packed what they could carry, and often are bringing children Uh, on a multi-day, multi-week journey to the border of the United States where they are presenting themselves not as people who are crossing the border illegally, but they are presenting themselves as people seeking the asylum of the United States of America. And when you start to understand the reality of what's happening here on the ground, there's a lot of common ground. We can all agree that children should not be held in prison cells, We can all agree that prison shells should not be overcrowded, two or three times the amount of people they were designed to hold. And I even think that we can all agree that not every person who crosses the border should be treated as if they are a felon, drug trafficker, or sex trafficker, or arms dealer. There's a very big difference between someone who is fleeing for their life with their children in their arms and a person who is sneaking across the border wearing camouflage and a backpack full of drugs. And those of us who live along the border understand both of those realities, and I think we need two different systems to handle those. We probably do need a very robust prison system to arrest and do the law enforcement function, and I think we can all agree that I want this country to be safe, I don't want there to be a thriving drug trade. I don't want people involved in the prostitution and human trafficking to be thriving and bringing people across that border. So I want there to be strong border security, and I'm grateful for those uh, people in the United States whose job is to protect that border. I also think that what we're doing right now is we're using a prison system to address a humanitarian crisis. And that's where all the problems are coming. We simply do not have a government way to handle the flow of asylum seekers coming across our border. And so the churches and the interfaith community have been trying to step in, partner with the Border Patrol in order to address those humanitarian needs. And there's a lot of common ground there too. Even if if you believe that the government should have a very small role in doing the humanitarian work here, you can agree that the churches should be able to get resources and food and clothing and shelter to the people that are in, that are being detained. There is no reason that we should have people without enough food, without a a safe place to sleep, particularly those who are fleeing for their lives as they seek a better life in the United States. So I think there's lots of common ground here, and one of the things that's frustrating for those of us who live along the border is that watching the TV news, all you see is this polarized, black and white, yes or no kind of debate, whereas there is a, it's a very complicated set of situations that we're trying to figure out. And I think there's a strong role for the Episcopal Church, because we have both Republicans and Democrats, to really come together on that common ground and do the right thing, Uh, to figure out how to love our neighbor, how to love our neighbor right here on the border.
1: Thanks. That's very helpful to get a a better picture of the commonalities that are there and that indeed, as you said, are across our church. Um, I would love to hear from you about how people can be involved in supporting the ministries in your diocese. I think most people who are tuning in today That's probably the number one question that they might have is is how can they support you? So please speak more about that.
2: Thank you very much. I want to help everybody understand what it has been like to help support the asylum seekers ministry here in the diocese of the Rio Grande. As I said, as the detention centers have been overwhelmed and those asylum seekers who are awaiting their court date, right? So these are people who have, past their credible fear interview. There's a credible fear that if they return home, they will be harmed. And they have been given an ankle bracelet and there's a sponsoring family waiting to look after them and make sure they get to their court date, whenever that court date is. Those people were being detained in uh, the various detention centers along the border in our diocese and, and overcrowding was happening. And so the border patrol started loading people onto buses and bringing them to the various shelters uh, across the diocese. And all our congregations in all of those cities have been involved in receiving those buses and helping care for those asylum seekers. We were blessed, and I, it was a blessing, to be able to open the doors of our diocesan center, the Bosque Center. And we housed um, two different, for two different weeks, we housed about 185 asylum seekers who arrived on buses and and were sheltered here. When they came off the bus, these were families, mothers, fathers, children, some holding their children in their arms, some holding their children by the hand as they stepped off those buses. And these families had been on the road for eight to 20 days, eating whatever they could find, drinking whatever water they could drink, and sleeping mostly outdoors. They came to us immediately having been sheltered under the bridge in El Paso for a number of days where they had slept on dirt and had been given mylar blankets as they were held under that bridge uh, surrounded by the chain link fence. And so when they came off the bus, they were frightened, they were afraid, and they were exhausted. And we welcomed them with open arms. Uh, There were hugs, there was food, Uh, There were hot showers and safe places to sleep, places where a family that had been on the road and uncertain about what they would eat or where they would sleep had a room where they could close the door and know that their family would be safe and they could get a good night's sleep all the way through. Less than 24 hours later, the children were smiling. They were playing soccer in our parking lot. They had eaten good food. And uh, the, the sense of community and neighborliness that happened in just a short period of time, as we welcome people like we would welcome Jesus Christ, it was transformative. So I, I just want the Episcopal Church to hear how the reception that the Episcopal Church, not just here in Rio Grande, but in all of our four dioceses along the border, are, are receiving. it is holy work and it is transforming work. Now, about two weeks ago, all of that changed. As the Remain in Mexico policy came into force, the buses stopped coming. And now the shelters in our diocese are largely empty. It sounds like that would be a good thing. Maybe the crisis is going away. But what's actually happening is a very different story. What's happening now for those asylum seekers who present themselves at the border, and remember, these are not people who are crossing illegally. They're not smuggling anything into the country. These are families who are running for their lives and arrive at the border seeking legal asylum in this country. When they present themselves to the border patrol now, they are taken to a judge for their credible fear interview, given a court date, and then driven across the border into Juarez, into Ciudad Juarez, where they will wait for their court date. So instead of having hundreds of people a day being processed through our system here in this country, and, and when we had people, they would stay in our shelters for three, maybe four days. We would take them to the bus station and the Greyhound bus would take them to a sponsoring family and they would stay with that sponsoring family until their court date. Now what's happening is those buses are letting people off in Juarez where the infrastructure isn't the same at all. Right now in the city of Juarez, the city of Juarez has put together in partnership with various church groups, 13 shelters that are sheltering asylum seekers. But there's not enough space for everybody there right now. And so now people who are waiting for their court date in the United States for their asylum claim to be heard in the United States are waiting on the streets of Juarez. And uh, there's, not necessar- there's not clarity about where they should go. We have been partnering with a priest from the Diocese of Northern Mexico, who is responsible for three churches in Juarez, and he has, been, he has opened up one of the three churches and is currently housing 80 asylum seekers while they wait for their court date. But here's the thing, their court dates are all in April and March of 2020. So instead of on this side of the border where the churches were sheltering people for three or four days before taking them to their sponsoring families in the U.S., now we're looking at the prospect of sheltering people for six to eight months while they wait in Juarez. These are people who do not feel safe going home to wait, and there's nowhere else for them to wait but in the city of Juarez. They can't get work permits. They can't get jobs. They're not allowed to work. They're simply waiting for their U.S. court date. In shelters like the one that um, our friend Padre Hector has opened in the city of Juarez. So now we in the diocese for the past two weeks have been trying to figure out we have all of these resources. We have more diapers than we can handle. We have all kinds of food and water and clothing which people from all over the Episcopal Church have been helping to donate and help us fund. And we're trying to figure out how do we get those resources into the Diocese of Northern Mexico to where the people are and where the need is. And so um, it's been a. we've also been trying to get resources into the detention facility that has been holding the children. That detention facility in Clint, Texas, is in our diocese as well. And the Border Patrol has said they are not able to receive any uh, food or clothing or medicine or toothbrushes or soap for the children that are in the care and the facility in Clint, Texas. We did just a couple of days ago figure out a way through a back channel to get some books, soccer balls, and playing cards into that facility. But the best thing that people can do right now, because the buses aren't coming, we don't need more diapers, we don't need more clothes, we could use some money because we want to get that across into Juarez to help perhaps open up two more shelters run by the episcopal by, by the uh, church in the the Anglican Church in Mexico, in order to shelter the people that are now waiting in the city of Juarez.
1: Excellent. That's wonderful to hear the rundown of the ministries and the varieties that you're experiencing and folks' journeys that you are you know uplifting and providing that um, you know really the hands and feet and hearts of Jesus to them as they are experiencing this uh, journey. So what I'm gonna do now, we have a lot of great questions that are coming in, which is really wonderful, that I think uh, Bishop Hun, you'll be excellent to speak to. Uh, but I'm gonna quickly turn it to my colleague, Kendall Martin of Episcopal Migration Ministries, who will be sharing some details about how you can get involved with Episcopal Migration Ministries and the Episcopal Public Policy Network, and how we are engaging. Um, and then we'll turn it back to open question answer, which Alan will be facilitating.
5: Sure. Thank you, Lacey. So we want to invite you to join the Episcopal Public Policy Network if you're not um, currently receiving those updates and action alerts. And the address is advocacy.episcopalchurch.org. This is a grassroots network of Episcopalians across the country who are dedicated to carrying out our baptismal covenant call to strive for justice and peace. And we do that through the active ministry of Public Policy Advocacy. We would also invite you to join Episcopal Migration Ministries Partners and Welcome program. Um, this is an online learning and networking communi- community for people who are actively engaged or who wish to be engaged um, in the work of supporting refugees and asylum seekers. So we invite you to visit episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash partners and welcome and learn how you can sign up today. And we would also invite you to support our ministry at Episcopal Migration Ministries, which you can do at episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash give. And you can also follow along with both Episcopal Public Policy Network and EMM through social media. Um, We are at the EPPN and at EMM Refugees. Thanks, Lacey. We
1: are gathering all the resources um, that we've mentioned today, statements from bishops, including Bishop Hun. Um, and those from around the country and other resources on the Episcopal Migration Ministries website. So we'll go back now to our dialogue and open it up for questions. Alan, I'd like to invite you to um, go ahead and and moderate this question and answer conversation for the conclusion of our webinar.
3: Yeah, sounds great. Uh, Thank you, Lacey, and uh, thank you to everybody who's submitting really great questions. Um, And just know that uh, our office, the Office of Government Relations and Episcopal Migration Ministries are both here for you as a resource in this work. So please reach out to us um, at any point if your questions aren't answered or you come up with others along the way. Um, So to our our great guests um, and speakers, um, first question which which came up from a couple of different perspectives. Um, What can people who are not in border diocese do Um, to both share information within their communities and engage in this topic? Um, And then maybe more specifically, adding on to that, is the visible presence helpful? So would pilgrimages to the border be a helpful way to engage?
2: First of all, thank you for that question. That that is, uh, and there's a lot that people can do. If you live along the border, there may be some things you can do, but if you don't live along the border, there's a lot you can do too one of the most important things is to help people understand the issues that are going on. If the only information people are getting is the polarized message coming through the national news media, and and if the only thing they're getting is the uh, Democrat versus Republican story, then um, it's gonna be hard for us to find that common ground. So I would love it if you all would share the fact that there is uh, a moral uh, question on the table here that we can work together towards. Share that with your neighbors, share that in your congregation. Look to our website and the websites of those other dioceses along the border to get the information about what it's like on the border, particularly as the situation changes. And I would also say you can advocate to help change the policy of our government by calling your representatives and really helping them understand that we, we need a system to deliver humanitarian assistance to legitimate asylum seekers in this country, and we need a robust system to tell the difference between an asylum seeker fleeing for her life and someone who is um, sneaking in for some nefarious purpose. We, right now, are treating everything as if it's the same. We really need a system to, to develop a different way to treat a legitimate asylum seeker family from treating a criminal. You can also support with uh, financial help, and there may very well be an opportunity or a need to do some witness here along the border. Right now, I'm not clear about exactly what that should look like at this point, and here's why. When I visited the detention center in Clint, Texas, just uh, two days ago on Saturday, I went there in order to try and bring the resources that we have stockpiled in the Episcopal Diocese of the Rio Grande to the children in need there. We had spent 10 days trying to call and get permission to bring stuff, but I had a chance with a community group to go to the facility in Clint. The border patrol agents who came out to greet us, you know, those folks are doing their job. They're implementing a policy. And to protest them or to to do a big, Thing in that sense, is not necessarily all that helpful at the moment. What we need to do, I think, is to figure out a way to put pressure on the policymakers in order to allow the Border Patrol agents to collaborate with the churches in order to have the resources that the Border Patrol says they don't need. So um, by all means, if and when there is a time when uh, some sort of a protest act is the right move, we will let you know and we would welcome the help. In the meantime, we are hearing in Juarez, and it has certainly been the case here in the shelters in our diocese, that there is a need particularly for people who are Spanish speakers, but also for clergy who could work through interpreters to provide pastoral care. The people that are coming don't just need food and they don't just need clothes. They're often frightened, they're depressed, and they're worried. Part of what is keeping me up at night today is the stories I'm hearing from the asylum seekers that are currently being sheltered in Juarez with Padre Hector. Those folks are now feeling very depressed and and frightened that they will never be able to get into the United States. And they are frightened about going home and they don't know where to stay. And they're feeling very much lost and abandoned. So we as the churches need to step in and help provide pastoral care and help. And if you're able to do that kind of a thing, we are working on figuring out a way to provide that sort of pastoral care.
4: Thank you, Bishop Hun. And I would just add um, that what folks can do is just stay engaged on this issue. This will be out of the news. There will be something else that will overtake it. But the conditions that are forcing people to flee will still be present. There will still be people who are trying to seek asylum. There will still be people who are in limbo status waiting to get work permits and refugees who are waiting to be resettled. So our advocacy work needs to take the long view. We need to build up a constituency of people who decry both the conditions and are working towards reform in a positive way that allows us as a nation to have a humane, just, compassionate, and sensible immigration policy. So I would urge everyone um, individually but in your communities to realize that in six months in a year this will still be ongoing. We will still need your support and we will need your attention even as other issues arise.
3: Great thank you all for those uh those responses um, and this this question um, Bishop Han, again, if you could start and maybe Lacey and and Kindle um, chime in with this as well um, does the Episcopal Church work with uh, the dioceses that are on the that are south of the border outside of the u s um, and two, connected to that. Um, how do we address the root causes of migration? Um, and what has specifically caused the shift to families seeking asylum uh, versus individuals?
2: Thank you for that. Thank you for that question. I'll take it in, in two parts. The, the first is a very clear yes. One of the great advantages that we have as being part of the Anglican communion is that we are directly connected person to person with each of the countries from which people are coming. And the church, I think, has a very real opportunity as the Anglican Communion to figure out how we can care for people at every stage of the journey. And I also think it's important for us to work as a church to help people not have to leave their homes. So I think there's a real opportunity for the church right now to work across the borders in a way that governments may not be able or willing to do. The bottom line is, you know, Jesus told us to love our neighbor, not because it's easy, but because God wants us to live in a neighborhood, a neighborhood where people feel safe. And if, if my neighbors are having a really tough time and they're in desperate straits, that affects my safety. And that's what's happening right now. We can help get the gospel message of love your neighbor out into this entire hemisphere using the, the church, and not just the, the Anglican Communion, but the ecumenical relationships we have with other churches to help people remember, we are here to love our neighbor. We are not here to just keep the neighbor out so that I feel safe. And, and I think that that's a critical part of what the church can do. The second, I are people fleeing with their families. This is something that is hard for some of us to get our heads around. What would, it call, what would it take for me to be desperate enough to leave my home, my job, and all that I own with all that I can carry and my children, risking their health and potentially their lives on an uncertain journey through two or three countries' borders in hopes that maybe I'll arrive at the United States and they will take me in and then I'll be able to start over with nothing that is the level of desperation that the families who are asylum seekers are bringing when they get off that bus in in the united states now what would cause that kind of desperation what we're hearing from particularly the northern triangle countries is that there is such a level of violence between the drug cartels and the police forces that as a young man grows to the age of being a uh, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, they are starting being aggressively recruited by the cartels. And, if, and their families are threatened in order to force them to join the cartels. The other option is for them to try to resist that, in which case the cartels lean in even further with more pressure in order for them to join the police force, in which case they're on the other side of, of this battle. If a young girl Reaches 10, 11, 12 years of old. She is, she is threatened with rape in order to get her father or her brother or her cousins to join the drug cartels. So the fear is about being conscripted and forced into the drug gang. So the drug trade is what is really driving the violence here. And it is the violence that people are freeing, it is the, the desperation of people who are saying to their 13, 14, 15-year-old sons, get with the caravan, join it, and go with God's blessing. I hope you have a safer life than you're going to have here. That's the desperation that is leading a, a father with his toddler daughter on his shoulder to swim the river after having started an asylum process and being dropped back off on the Mexican side of the border. The desperation is real. And, and so that is, what is, that is what we're seeing in terms of what's driving this humanitarian crisis.
3: Great, that's, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, and critical to keep in mind the international component um, of what's going on. Um, next question, and this might be the last one, um, trying to piece together uh, different questions that we've, we've received that are more specific. Um, so how can people who are across the country really support um, immigrants how can they support undocumented immigrants? How can they support people who are in detention centers, um, who are not along the southern border? Uh, what has the Episcopal Church been doing and how can they connect to that work? Um, so Lacey, Rebecca Kendall, I might uh, ask you all to get a uh, give a first shot at that question.
1: Thank you, Alan. I'd like to just say that, you know, as I said at the top of this webinar, We aren't able to cover it all. There are a lot of uh, policy dynamics and ministry happening in the Episcopal Church on a variety of issues related to immigration, whether that is, as you said, um, accompanying and supporting undocumented immigrants, whether it is advocating and supporting refugees who have been resettled to the United States, um, or a variety of other ways. And... Just say to acknowledge that all of those are incredibly important, and it's been extremely gratifying to see the Episcopal Church mobilize and work together to address these issues in new and dynamic ways, and partner um, with partners in the community and people who are living this reality every day, which is incredibly important. And we have resources on our website. Uh, which we'll be sharing in a link after this with resources that include documents such as 10 ways to accompany undocumented immigrants and even some definitions defining what's the difference between the silent seeker, a refugee, or an undocumented immigrant. All of those education and advocacy tools are on our website, which we'll be sharing with you. I want to specifically share some of the things that we've been doing in response to this issue, um, in addition to others, of course, The question about root causes is incredibly important, and one of the ways that we're working to address that is through advocating for additional appropriations and funding, ensuring that the United States government is funding and supporting uh, organizations like nonprofits who are addressing corruption or who are addressing um, sexual and gender-based violence in the region to... uh, protect individuals and help them again be safe where they can be. We actually have we have a policy advisor who is uh, dedicated full time to international policy issues and development. So that's one of the ways we're doing that. We also have action alerts on our website so that you can directly send a message to your members of Congress and let them know that you support protections for asylum seekers and that we must uphold due process and protections for these individuals. We, also in the Office of Government Relations, do a lot of relationship building and behind the scenes work, including Hill meetings to them about these issues, to share what the church is doing, and to deliver our positions from General Convention and Executive Council. We've also issued statements to Congress and the administration, and signed on to letters, which actually do have quite an impact in terms of outlining from faith communities and others, the policies and where we want them to go. Rather than just opposing policies, we're helping dictate where the policy should go, what solutions we should actually have that would be humane. And again, we'll be, all of those are on our website that you can find. I will turn it to Rebecca to offer a couple more words about uh, our work in the Office of Government Relations.
4: Yeah, thank you, Lacy. And to add on to what Lacy said, we have a number of ways that we have witnessed publicly as our office through statements, um, again, through education, the events like the webinar we're doing, through um, sending uh, statements to members on Capitol Hill, visits with congressional offices. And there are two ways that we do our work in OGR, and one is this very public-facing work where we are sending out messages and alerting and activating Episcopalian to take action. But we're also, every single day, having quiet meetings and um, getting an understanding of what the political dynamics are, so that we can then better equip you as advocates to take action. So please be in touch with us um, if you're interested in learning more about that. Again, our hope is to empower you to take action. You can see what we've done publicly, but know that for every one of those statements, there's been a dozen hill visits where we've pleaded our case privately, and where we've met with the administration officials to try to understand what's happening, what we can do. So. I just want to thank everyone again for being here um, for your own witnessing, for caring about this issue. Bishop Hun, we are so grateful for your ministry and for your leadership in this role. We are keeping you and your diocese in our prayers. Um, hope to continue this conversation going forward and be able to continue to learn from you and um, share the message that you have about the way that we can move forward through this um, with Capitol Hill, and then of course with our network as well. so, With much gratitude um, to all, and we will be sending follow-up links, resources, and emails, and invite further relationships. So thank you again, and take care.
5: Thank you for joining us for today's episode. We hope you have enjoyed the second season of Hometown.
0: you have a question about how to be most helpful in serving refugees, immigrants, and asylum seekers? Are you interested in sharing your work or your congregation's work? Are you eager to make connections with other people who are doing similar kinds of work and to learn from one another? We invite you to join Partners in Welcome, EMM's free online learning community and ministry network that offers a chance for engaging in conversation, connecting with people from all over the country who care about these issues, as well as a wealth of resources and learning opportunities. We have so much to gain from sharing information and experiences with each other. We do hope you sign up today. And if you're involved in work at the border or with border dioceses, please share your work in the Partners in Welcome community.
5: Follow EMM on Facebook, Twitter, and
0: Instagram where we are EMM Refugees. Join in the work of welcome by making a donation to Episcopal Migration Ministries. No gift is too small and all are put to use to welcome our newest neighbors and release educational materials to help local communities get involved in welcoming work visit episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash give or text Hometown to 91999. Our theme song composer is Abraham Mwenda Ikondo. Find his music at abrahammwenda.bandcamp.com. And Kendall, our listeners might be interested to know that Abraham is coming out with a new music video soon. Oh, that's very exciting. I know. I saw that on his social media. So yes, listeners, please support our theme song composer. And until next time, peace be with you and all those you consider home.